Hello and welcome to the RPG Academy's Show and Tell. As you all know, Show and Tell is a show where we like to bring on cool guests to talk about something cool that they've worked on. And today's cool guest is none other than Francesco Nepotello. And we're going to be talking about the One Ring Second Edition, a game that you all know I am very excited about. Not because I uh, am a huge Lord of the Rings fan or even a... Uh, a a one ring fan before but you know i'm a huge free league fan so here we are so uh francesco uh welcome to the show thank you tom i'm really happy to to uh be having been called to be a guest here <laughs> uh no it was we've been trying to get uh we've been trying to get anyone with free league on for a long time again because it's been a while so this is this is awesome so i guess really uh when we're recording this right now all the packages, we were kind of talking about this before, everything's going out. So people are receiving the One Ring rewards that they got on Kickstarter. All right, so just kind of icebreaker question here. What's it, what's it like seeing everybody just receive something that you made on? How does that make you feel? Oh, it's a, it's a lovely experience, especially when the people are uh, receiving it so, so graciously as they are. Uh, even if, as you know, and everyone I think on the postcard knows that we had some some hiccups uh, with the with the production of the game, namely with the dice. But we can go about it later on. I think that also today. Oh, um, I don't know when this is going uh, online, but uh, there was Thomas from Free League addressing thing on a live podcast. But uh, yeah, it's very very exciting because we worked hard on on the project and we tried to make sure that everything was 100% perfect. We didn't succeed, as, as I was saying. <laughs> but at least yeah. as far as the graphical presentation and the uh, the content of the game, the way the game works, I'm, I'm really, really happy. Nothing is ever uh, perfect, so everything can be made a little bit better. But I think we achieved a, a very high uh, rating as far as uh, getting very close to what we wanted. Yeah, I got my pro I got my box yesterday with all my stuff in it. I I I'd back the Kickstarter and it was just it's high quality, just a uh, you know, another good free league product. But and yeah, you know what? The elephant in the room, the dice, free league's already come out, they've addressed it. They're gonna be sending out some new dice to folks. That's awesome. Uh, but uh we were, I've been joking with so many people about how we are the select lucky few who have the 11 dice. And so now we get to, in 20 years, we just get to sell them for so much money. So yeah, that's yeah. what we hope anyway. Uh, in the, I mean, uh, of course it's an unfortunate situation and I know that there's people that are not taking that very graciously, uh, but uh, <laughs> if something had to go wrong with the dice, it went wrong in a way that is, slightly less uh, impairing than it could be because i think the yeah. i think that the way that the dice are uh, misprinted uh, still make them usable um and also the number that is there instead of a 1 is an 11 that of course you know that has some significance with the uh, with the um the birthday for Bilbo Baggins that celebrates yeah. 111 so so yeah, it's a it's a funny thing if taken the right way. <laughs> it's it's funny. It's funny now. I, I don't even want to think about the 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 meetings and the emails and everything that went on early on. So, but that's not what we're here to talk about. So I want to talk about uh the one ring. I also wanna talk since this is the first time having you on the show. I want 
to get to know you a little bit more and let our listeners know who you are. So, Francesco, I know you have a you've got a long history in RPG design and board game design. So what's your can you boil that down then and tell us who is Francesco and what have you been doing for so many years in game design? Well, I think that the the place where I am is the product of a number of coincidences that uh, may, basically made possible uh, for me to achieve a dream. The dream was always to 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 be working in a in a creative field, and this started uh, still when I was still in high school. So before I had to settle on on a job or something like that. And so, and I knew Marco Maggio already, we were, I mean, playmates, we played games, board games uh, and so on since we were in, uh, since we were 11, something like that. Uh, and so growing up, uh, we were more and more de- deeper and deeper into this hobby that as you know, role-playing games, especially, but also board games uh, in many ways, push their users into a creative field because they make you want to 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 fine tune games to your own taste make house rules and so on so it's not at all uncommon for for a player of a board game or a role playing game to to just play uh, just make their own version of a game uh, from that to to try and do a, a full fledged design it's a, still a big step but it's not so um something that i mean almost everyone thought at least to 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 try that uh and since we were we had a very big drive towards a creative field we decided to 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 push in that direction because games seemed to be our thing and the lucky part was that we uh, grew up in venice where we actually where we still have a studio and where we live and uh, in Venice, there's one of the only uh, game studios in Italy, one of the first uh, that, that ever existed in, in the peninsula. And, and also Alex Randolph, a game designer from the US, uh, was living in Venice since decades. And he was one of the most prolific board game designers ever. So we ended up, uh, you know, uh, having to do with these people uh, because we were going to the same club where Backgammon, for example, was played and other games were explored. And also we started playing role-playing games because we discovered D&D about in the early years of the 80s and and felt that was really something and and dove, you know, headfirst into that. And and so one led to, to the other. We were very, very proficient, you know, very knowledgeable in role-playing games. The other guys were not much into that in the studio. So they thought that our uh, skill set could be useful. We ended up working with them. And that led to 1993 when we published our first game and it was a, a role-playing game. Uh, that many things happened, especially Magic the Gathering, that made RPGs less interested, interesting from an economical point of view if you wanted to make a, a living out of that. Uh, we had also different jobs to continue to do that, the classic day job while we were doing yeah. Yeah, designing games. But, you know, we kept on going. We were so driven that, that uh, eventually that paid off. 
uh, that paid off because we we went and meet the right people. We went to Germany every year for many years to to spiel in Essen and Nuremberg, uh, the other important game fair, meeting designers and so on. So eventually everything led, everything fell in, in, in the same place. I mean, all the puzzle pieces went there and we kept going. Uh, and probably that's the first big achievement that you know solidif solidified everything was 2004 when we published the War of the Ring strategy board game. That was a very big success. It's still in print after 17, 18 years uh, with anniversary edition, collector's edition, and so on. That for sure was the reason why I ended up writing The One Ring, uh, because I had already a uh, sort of a uh, career as a designer that who was proficient with the Lord of the Rings lore and so on. And so I was called to do that. And here we are. <laughs> so what made you and what made you and Marco then decide to take that jump then from board game to now we want to do an RPG of the Lord of the Rings? Yeah, as I said, uh, we started as RPG designers because the first design published was Lex Arcana. Uh, it's a fantasy historical fantasy role playing game uh, based in a in a Roman Empire that didn't fail thanks to the exist didn't fall uh, thanks to the existence of magic and. We were always role players. So throughout our career into board games, uh, we kept playing, uh, and especially games by Chaosium first, and then White Wolf, and so on. What? What? I mean, I have a library there of games that is just a part of it, and it's just full <laughs> of books. And so it was a passion that never disappeared completely. Uh, the decision to leave them out of our design career was because it was too much of a hassle to, to write role-playing games uh, because it's a lot of pages. And also there was a language barrier because while it was very easy for us to write uh, rule books of a game, of a board game in English, to sell the game to, to a foreign market publisher, uh, it was not it was not the, the case with role-playing games. We couldn't just say, okay, we'll write a couple of hundred pages in English for a game that we might never sell. So uh, that was something that was a stumbling block and we couldn't go further until uh, someone came to knock at our door and said, oh, you designed that brilliant uh, War of the Rings strategy game and I know your role-players. Why don't you write the One Ring role-playing a, a lord of the rings role-playing game for us and this was a company that today have nothing to do with the project at all but they were the ones who who made it all happen and then we ended up with sophisticated games who are the the owners the the, the holders of the license to to create adventure games and and the rest is history we went to in 2011 we published first edition and now 10 years after, 10.1, <laughs> uh, 11 years after, we have the One Ring Second Edition with Free League. Nice. So I want to so ask you then, before you made the One Ring, you were role players. Did you ever do any role playing in Middle Earth? Yeah, uh, I played uh, as a player. I played the, the old Iron Crown design, uh, Middle Earth role playing. And... And then I played also the Decipher game, The Lord of the Rings, that came out at the time of the movies, uh, as a GM, as a game master. And uh, the first 
experience with multilateral playing was something that convinced me that it was not possible to play uh, in Middle Earth uh, without uh, making too much violence to, to, to the game world. So I, I didn't feel I was in Middle Earth when I was playing Middle Earth role playing. I, uh, I enjoyed it. It was fun. It was good fun. Uh, but the game took so many liberties with the with the actual uh, work of J.R.R. Tolkien that I said, okay, that's a fantasy game. It's fun. It's interesting, but it's not The Lord of the Rings. And, and it was more of a negative opinion towards the world than the game, because I didn't think it was possible to do that in any way different. When the Decipher game came out, uh, it was... It, it, I mean, it, it you much closer to the to the uh, you know to the canon, even to strictly because they published stuff that were basically source books based on the various parts of the book and the movies, like with the Fellowship of the Ring source book and then the Two Towers source book and so on. So it was even too narrow in that case. In that case, I had a problem with the rules. The rules tried to be some sort of D and D third edition. With the you know with the numbers filed off with the serial numbers filed off, so yeah. based on three d sixes instead of the d twenty, but everything was basically the same, and I didn't like that. So at the time, I made something that I don't usually do much. I converted the campaign that we were playing with the deciphers game to a homebrew game using King Arthur and Dragon by Chaosium that me and my friends called the One Ring. RPG. So we had this full game based on the based on the uh, on the mechanics of the Chaosium game by Greg Stafford. That's that's a masterpiece, by the way. Uh, the Pendragon game. It's a it's a fantastic game, and many many of its design principles were very adapt adaptable, very appropriate to to Middle Earth, and so we enjoyed that campaign a lot. And so yeah when this, this this has some relevance with what we're talking about also because when i was asked uh to design the game i actually tried to to deviate the request to the to greg stafford and said he might do one yeah he might do one one game i would like to play i would love to play maybe we can do that together i don't know it was a sort of a dream to work with greg stafford no, so I was just going to say, so when you went to sit down, so obviously somebody knocked at your door, asked you to make the game. So when you went to go sit down and do this design, what was, what did you say, you and your team that you're working with, like, this is what we are going to do to make this game feel like Lord of the Rings for us? Uh, it's, it's interesting because I never had any doubts. Uh, I don't remember a moment where I had some uh, moment of, of indecisiveness. I was there and I wanted to do the game in one way. And so I immediately started to, to work in a direction. And, and if in a few words, it was um, studying the source material in depth to isolate uh, what uh, makes that, story belong to to middle earth so uh i was taking notes of all the of all the the words that were used continuously uh the the way that the traits that were used for characters to be to be described and so on so i started to make a list basically of what what was important through the language by studying the language, I was trying to to filter, like you know, like, I don't know, like a gold digger with uh, on the river, yeah. mm -hmm. to 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 
sift everything out and remain with what was really important. And, and it was really, it was language. So everything in the game is based on that. Uh, all the mechanics, all the, uh, all the skills, all the, the, the stats in the game are taken directly from the Lord of the Rings. So what, what, and what uh, I found at the end of my search were all the elements that I knew I needed to put into the game. So then, yeah, I mean, there is, I am by no, I enjoy Lord of the Rings. I've read the books. I've watched the movies, you know, I've done all the things that a normal person's done. And, but yeah, there are entire degrees that you can get on Tolkien. So I have to then ask you then, so obviously you're a, you're a Lord of the Rings nerd, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe a little bit. Sure. Sure. So, what, <laughs> so, so what's your, so, okay. All right, now this is me just. A simple question here then. What is your favorite Lord of the Rings character? <laughs> mm, mm, it's hard to say uh, because there's so many characters, but every time I think about this, uh, it might be due to the fact that I have a, a daughter, uh, but generally I think that one of the most interesting, most original characters in the books is Elvin. The daughter, uh, the, the 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 niece of Theoden King, in uh, in the Lord of the Rings, because um, differently from the movie, the movie tried to put some complications into some characters that are simpler in the books. Uh, for example, if you take Boromir and Faramir, uh, Boromir is a very interesting character, very nuanced, very very with a dark side. Uh, Faramir is the opposite of Boromir in, in the books. In the books is all too perfect yeah, to the point that he, yeah, is so, I mean, he's lovable and everyone likes a sort of a white knight, so to speak, uh, also because he's, he's placed against the, 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 the refusal of his father, but uh, his otherwise is perfect. Uh, he refuses to take the ring. I mean, he said, I wouldn't, pick the ring up if I found it on the road. So something that is unimaginable with everyone else in the book. Uh, Elvian is instead a character that is, you know, like, a, I don't know, you say this, like a square peg in a round hole. Uh, she, she's totally out of place in her society because what she, it's expected of her is exactly the opposite of what she would like to, to do. And, and she has this sort of a, attraction to, to Aragorn that is actually an attraction for a way out. So it's a very modern, very complicated character. And I think that Tolkien produced some of the best prose in, in the book when she's, she's involved. Uh, the, the conversation between Aragorn and, and Eowyn before Aragorn leaves for the Paths of the Dead is amazing because Aragorn makes, he's, he's a superhero, is a character that should be the one above everyone else in the book. And in that conversation, he's humbled by, by, by Elvin because she says, basically she says, you're like everyone else. You want me to stay home. That's, <laughs> that's the sum of it. And, and it's something yeah. that is really moving. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, that's one of the uh, attractive pieces of Lord of the Rings is just the, the sheer amount of characters and the fact that Tolkien was able to give all these characters, these different nuances and personality. It just, it, it's, I, it, it makes the game ripe for role playing then. Yes. So I got to ask you then, so talking about, we've talked a little bit about your design process here, but now talking specifically about 
One Ring Second Edition. What would you say is the elevator pitch for this game? Uh, it depends if I'm talking to someone who knew first edition or to someone who's completely new. Okay, so me, I never played first edition. Okay. So give it to me brand new. <laughs> well, I might say that the One Ring, I'll mention One Ring for the One Ring first edition because I might say that the One <laughs> Ring first edition was hailed as possibly the best adaptation of J.R. Tolkien's work into RPG format. The second edition preserves everything that was good in the first edition and makes it more playable and better. So it's a it's a polished version of something that was already considered uh, extremely good for what it aimed to be. So uh, to do uh, and so the the uh, um, summoning the world of Tolkien uh, for a tabletop role playing game. With first edition, then you talk about it being a little bit polished. Um, I know there was a you all. How long was first edition in publication? As how long were you producing products for it? Ten years. Ten years. Okay. Mm-mm-mm. So I mean that's a that's a long lifespan. Yes. For a game, so I'm guessing there was maybe some source book creep that started to yeah the, the, show we, up. We, I don't remember. We have about ten or twelve publications for. So, you know, yeah, twelve, I think. Publication for the One Ring that explored uh, the 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 world of Middle Earth in uh, in different directions, uh, uh, adding uh, ready to play adventures and source books for for uh, regions. Uh, but um, it was set. Uh, we changed two things with the One Ring Second Edition. We shifted the geographical focus. We moved it away from where we were. We were in Wilderland. That's a, it's, a, it's the region that is the focus of the Hobbit story. So the, the forest of Mirkwood, the, the, the stronghold of Dol Guldur, of Sauron, and the, 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 the lonely mountain where Smog the dragon was uh, sitting on the pile of dragon gold, of dwarven gold. So uh, we moved it away from there and we went to Eriador. Eriador is the region where the Shire is, uh, where the, the ancient realm of Arnor used to be. So it's filled with ruins of a past glory where the rangers of the north uh, dwell. So it's, it's closer to the Lord of the Rings. So we moved it geographically and we moved it also chronologically because we moved it 20 years uh, towards the the time of the War of the Ring, that is the, the time when the Lord of the Rings is set, so closer to the Lord of the Rings. We started with the with the Hobbit, and we're moving towards the, the the Lord of the Rings, and so yeah, that's that's probably the biggest difference. It's a difference in tone. The game is maybe a little bit darker than before. The the the, the tone of the game because uh, we were aiming for a sort of a optimistical look with the first edition where the dragon is dead, everyone is friends again, elves and dwarves and trade is ongoing and so on. And now we move to Eriador where the, the shadow of war is looming uh, because there's a, there are rumors of Sauron rebuilding his fortress in Mordor and so on. So getting a bit a bit somber. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, no, that's interesting because in person, so somebody who like myself doesn't necessarily know a ton of Lord of the Rings stuff other than the movies, the, the image that we we see of the Shire and Eridor is very much, um, 
very white, light in tone, but we only see the Shire there. So when you say it's a little bit darker in tone, that seems almost like counterintuitive for myself. But I guess we really didn't see a whole lot of this in the movies per se. Yeah, absolutely. Because one of the big biggest scenes of Peter Jackson was to cut one of my favorite scenes in The Lord of the Rings ever. <laughs> okay, <laughs> give it to us. And that's the Barrow White, the 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 Barrow Downs. Uh, you know, the, the hobbits start from Hobbiton in the Shire and they travel east to Rivendell. Along the road, they have many adventures. And one of the adventures they have is getting lost uh, in the old forest first, finding the, the, the Willow Man and so Tom Bombadil, all the parts that Peter Jackson decided to, to leave out because they were too strange and they were deviating from uh, keeping a tight focus on the story and so on. But when you read the books, those parts are just enchanting. And the Barrow White is amazing because it's some one of the things that uh, was that passed on so many role-playing games. You cannot even mention them because it's it's a land of barrows, so uh, where the dead are buried and and where haunted by by creatures that, that dwell there. And so uh, that that is what we we really think about when we think of Eriador. Because, you know, the Shire is so much like a modern world, but it's, it's, a, it's a sort of a fenced uh, place uh, defended by the rangers. The hobbits don't know they live inside uh, uh, a region that is actually very, very dangerous. <laughs> Interesting. So I want to ask then, um, so there's we there's there's a lot of stuff to talk about with this product, but one of the things that I wanted to ask you about because it's something that I haven't seen a whole lot of information about is one of the one of the source one of the other books that are part of this second edition Lost, which hasn't been released just yet, which is Ruins of the Lost Realm. Is there anything that what is this? Because when I see this and read about this, this is like I'm like oh this is dark and ruins. It's Reminds me somewhat of Forbidden Lands, um, Free League's other product. What is Ruins of the Lost Realm? Uh, it's, a, it's a good thing you mentioned Forbidden Lands because there are some similarities there. And uh, uh, also a small, uh, a small um, side thing. Uh, when you said that you are a, a Free League fan, that what you do is, uh, I mean, the reason you, you called me to talk about the Lord of the One Ring is because the One Ring came to, to, to Free League as a publisher. And I must say that we're exactly on the same, uh, on the same uh, starting point because I am a fan of Free League. Now, now, I'm a, okay. <laughs> now I'm a designer for them, but I am a fan first. And it started when I got Forbidden Lands and then I have basically everything else now. And, and Forbidden Lands um, was, was a revelation for me because uh, it brought back uh, the idea of an old school game that isn't simply a repetition of the rules of old D&D, like so many uh, old school revival type of games out there. Uh, they reinvented old school gaming uh, in a fresh way. And what I really liked and what I really found extremely useful when playing is the system of adventure sites. Uh, the fact that you have these self-contained adventure units that you can place, drop on, on the group of players in any ways, either because they go someplace, they're traveling 
uh, with the hex crawl system of the game or because you give them you a handout to describe in a, a rumor about it. I found it to work so well that I had to, to import it into the One Ring. And the reason I wanted to import it was also because Eriador is completely perfect for this. It's a land dotted with, with, with ruins, with, with sinister castles on the top of hills where Tolkien doesn't go into much detail in the books. So there are so many gray areas, so many things to, to say uh, without uh, the risk of contradicting the lore. No, that makes total sense. And I was reading, like I said, I, I'm, I obviously I had all the PDFs that got sent early, but I'm one of those people like I like to wait until I have that physical product and to start flipping through something. And so I had I got it yesterday, and I started flipping through the starter set, and it, it did very feel like there was these this there this adventure site kind of focus, very modular, and I I like that. And I looked in the back of the core book, and there's a hex map here. <laughs> all right, so did so was there a hex? So there, are you saying there wasn't a hex crawl aspect in the first edition? <laughs> no, there wasn't because the 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 hex map you see uh, was there also in in the One Ring first edition, uh, but it's uh, part of the journey mechanics uh, because the game has three main aspects, and these are combat journeys and councils. Councils where people meet to discuss things. So these are the three elements that the uh, uh, game master and the players will use over and over. So subsystems, so to speak, instead of having just combat or magic and stuff like that. So adventures in the Lord of the Rings are sequences of these type of things. A journey plus a combat plus a council, or maybe first a council, then a journey, then a combat, and so on. Uh, and it makes very, uh, I mean, creating new things very, very easy. And so this landmark element fell into this very, very uh, neatly because um, you might during a council hear about a place uh, that you might then journey to and then explore and then you find something there and you fight it. So that's the, the general idea. But yeah, the, the, the hex map, there's an interesting thing I would like to, to find out exactly once uh, one day because I remember that when Forbidden Lands came out and they had an X-Map, uh, it was the first time someone put an X-Map after the One Ring. So there was immediately this thought, maybe they played the game. <laughs> they played the One Ring before when we and they, they thought about it when they were designing it. Uh, I haven't had a, a definite answer, but when I finally met the guys from Free League, they definitely confirmed they were players of the One Ring. Not all of them, some of them. So, so there is a there is a connection between the two things, even if they do slightly different things. Okay. So one of the other questions I have. So I personally, I've kind of steered away from licensed games for one specific reason, and that's because I find it difficult to play a character in a world that I love and know. Like I'm a big Star Wars fan, but I don't like playing Star Wars role playing game for whatever reason. So. What kind of it? What advice would you give for somebody who wants to play in Middle Earth, but is kind of nervous about affecting the overall story? Uh, I would say that whoever wants to try it should trust us, because what we did was uh, everything we did 
was exactly to accommodate uh, the, the, the need of a fan of the stories to play in a world they might be afraid of, of touching. And so uh, we made every effort to, to make the characters feel like they belong to the, to, to the land and to the history of Middle Earth, and uh, also to place them in, in, uh, in locations, in, uh, in situations where they won't be uh, worrying about affecting the, the, the general story. Because, uh, for example, the, 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 first, the, the first edition of the game was set in 2946, that is five years after the Hobbit story, and now we're in 2965, that is 20 years uh, after that. And we're still very much in a time when uh, nobody specific is told in, in the stories. And so there is plenty of room for your characters to breathe and to do things and to do heroic deeds that are going to uh, to be part of the land of the story of Middle Earth without uh, you know affecting anything that has been told in the stories. We even did more than that because we generally tried to uh, add information in the books that uh, will make you will make it easy for you to connect. Uh, what's going on in your campaign and what's going to be the future of Middle-earth when the Lord of the Rings story starts. Uh, to make just an example of the Darkening of Mercury campaign that was for, done for first edition, that is a, a template we're using also for uh, the way that we look at how to incorporate the lore of the Lord of the Rings and the game, uh, is that we started from the idea that in, in Wilderland, in Mirkwood, the, there's this population of woodmen that is mentioned uh, several times in the Hobbit story. And in the Lord of the Rings that is set about 70 years later, they, they're almost not mentioned in place you hear about the Bjornings. So what happened? Instead of thinking of simply deciding that, that that's okay, that's, that's what Tolkien decided to, to do, he changed his mind and, and he didn't care about mentioning the woodman anymore, we decided to think, what if that's due to something that happened in Wilderland? So the campaign is about the, uh, the waning of the, 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 the defeat of the woodman that eventually disappear before the Lord of the Rings story happened. Or if you play the game in a different way, you might be able to preserve the culture of the woodman there so much that they should have been mentioned in the Lord of the Rings. So you're playing in a sort of an alternate version of, of the story, uh, but you're not changing anything that is going to affect the plot of the Lord of the Rings. Interesting. So along those same lines, then, do you, when you all were making this game and what's actually here, is it possible then to interact with famous characters such as, you know, running into Gandalf or Aragorn or any of the the, the ho famous Hobbit families, the Baggins, the Tooks, any of those? Like, are those characters in this game? Absolutely. And they're not there simply because the game master might decide 
to boot them in a story. Uh, they're actually featured in, in the game mechanics. Oh, okay, gotcha. They feature in the game mechanics because, for example, when you create a group of players and uh, every, every player creates his own character or her own character and you get together, when you decide how you got together and so on, you also have to choose a patron. And a, and a patron is one famous character generally. So you have a choice between different ones and uh, like Gandalf, for example. And you might even have very unusual ones because they were unlocked as stretch goals during the Kickstarter campaign. So you might have Tom Bombadil as a patron. <laughs> okay, okay. And so all those are not simply a, a, a fluff element or something that, okay, you're, you're friends with Gandalf. They have actually game mechanics tied to i mean there's a difference between having gandalf as as a patron or elrond or uh kirdan from the from the havens for example so yeah so we we put a number of those in the core there's elrond in addition in the in the in the lore master screen and we might eventually have more in the future so at least that you have a direct connection to one of the famous characters another way that we were able to do this was with the starter set. With the starter sets, you play pre-generated characters and the pre-generated characters in that case, they're all hobbits and they're all famous hobbits because they are, for example, Drogo Baggins, uh, who's going to, who will become the father of Frodo Baggins and, and the father of Merry and Pippin. So you, you will be playing a company of hobbits that have a future as the, as the parents of, uh, of the the future heroes of the of the world of the ring and in some ways by playing those you are playing a sort of prelude to the lord of the rings <laughs> okay that's that's cool i you kind of mentioned this too all right so all right i love the idea that you brought those in as mechanics so but one of the things you said was uh you talked about the future okay this is a listener question i know this i'm we're moving into the difficult tricky questions okay i love to throw some of these at you all with curveballs okay so you say whatever you are open to saying, but what's the plan? Uh, obviously, the game just came out, but what's the plan? What's next? Can you talk about what's next? Or maybe what do you want to make for a second edition? Well, it depends if you mean in the short run or in the long run, because in the long run, there's one thing that is a sort of a dream I want to 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 achieve. And that's bringing the One Ring to the War of the Ring. So uh, we started with the One Ring first edition that was right after The Hobbit. We're now 20 years later with the One Ring second edition in Eriador. I'd like to see eventually, I don't know in how many years time, either a new edition of the game in five years or a, or a very big source book updating everything to, to some decades later, uh, getting closer and closer to the War of the Ring. Because one of my ideas very much early on is this. When you read about the Council of Elrond in The Lord of the Rings, you know some of the characters because you know Frodo, uh, you know Elrond and Gandalf and so on. But who are these other guys that become part of the Fellowship of the Ring? Okay, one is Aragorn, is the one is the future king, is the, the heir of Isildur. So, okay, no question that he is worthy of being part of the Fellowship. But then there's, and then there's Boromir. Boromir is the son of, of the steward of Gondor. So, but then also Legolas, okay, he's the 
the son of Thranduil, but and Gimli. Gimli is the son of Gloin, but all these characters are completely unknown to the reader. They hear about them for the first time there. Boromir, Legolas, Gimli. So my my idea is, what if you've been playing the One Ring since first edition and you have been playing characters for decades? And for example, your character is a Bjorning that um, earned his stripes in the battlefield against the wargs, against the, the shadow of Dol Guldur and so on. Why isn't he at the Council of Elrond representing the population of the, the Anduin Vale? And why not? Why can't he be chosen to be part of the Fellowship of the Ring in place of Gimli, for example? So my dream would be what? To, to give the possibility of players to, to have a campaign that eventually had its climax in, in the War of the Ring campaign, where you actually bring the ring to Mount Doom. <laughs> oh, that would be awesome. I mean, it's, it's, a sh- it's a sh- that War of the Ring. I mean, it's a, the, I mean, the movies, it's a short, it's a relatively short period. Exactly. Totally. But, but there's, there is a lot that can be done there. Yeah. You know, the Free League makes this these very nice boxed sets of adventures. Oh, they do. Yeah, like the 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 alien ones are, are amazing. That normally you you're used to think of boxed sets of for games. They do this for these short campaigns, cinematic campaigns, because they put all that stuff in there, all the material. So I would totally see a War of the Ring campaign like that with with all all the maps all the material everything to play exactly that one year of the quest of mount for mount doom (laughs) that would be awesome i do like you just you mentioned the alien adventure boxes so i like i really do like those too it comes with all the cards and the maps and everything there's a very it's a very low threshold for a game master to pick up and run and i love that and so yeah i think lord of the rings is ripe for this plus I love how they look on my shelf. Um, so, and that's that's half of the. Bunk. Just think if you could if you could have that like the alien boxes with so you have a card for the one ring. So who's going to to, to have this? Who's going to be the the, the ring bearer? Oh, man, I, I'm gonna have to choose my players very carefully. Yes. Okay. Um, so okay, the next kind of next question I really wanted to ask you because this is this is. Uh, as we kind of near a close, this we're talking about some more businessy stuff. All right. This is a it's the licensing for everybody knows the licensing for Lord of the Rings in general is an absolute cumbersome bear. Okay. So can you explain how um what is the relationship then with sophisticated games with the license and free league? How does that what is how did this how did this happen? What can you tell us? How does this license work? Because I'm confused. The, and I would the just license like to is very complicated because there's okay. there's a difference between the uh, the hairs hairs yeah, uh, of the family. The family, the yep. Tolkien family, is called the Tolkien Estate. Okay, the, it, the, it's a it's a society called the Tolkien Estate. They handle everything that is connected to the books. So everything you see that is connected to, to the books and whatever was published by Christopher Tolkien in the last decades is the Tolkien estate. But uh, years and years ago, in the late 70s, J.R. Tolkien personally sold the rights for movies based on The Lord of the Rings to a guy called Saul Zent. Saul Zent 
is now represented by this company called Middle Earth Enterprises. Since that time, yep. in the late 70s, all the rights connected to the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit are with Middle Earth Enterprises. Everything else is the Tolkien estate. Uh, so everything you have seen so far in the last 40 years connected to the Lord of the Rings, so the Ralph Bakshi movie, uh, the Peter Jackson movies, all the computer games you've seen from every company ever, all the board games, all the role-playing games have been licensed by Middle Earth Enterprises. So Solzent, not the family. The family was against basically everything that was published as a sort of a merchandising uh, way of, of marketing the, the, the literary um, property. So uh, this was true until some time ago uh, because something changed recently. But in any case, getting back to the board gaming thing, um, at the time of the, 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 the publication of the first edition of The One Ring, the license uh, to uh, Middle Earth Enterprises sold the rights Again, um, let me recap just a bit. So Middle Earth Enterprises <laughs> has all the rights, but they don't publish games directly. So they sub-license everything to different companies. For example, Iron Crown, the pub publisher for Middle Earth Enterprises, uh, for the Middle Earth role-playing game, had the license from Middle Earth Enterprises. So uh, after the Decipher game uh, disappeared, no one was claiming the license to do a role-playing game. At that time, sophisticated games went to, to uh, Middle Earth Enterprises to ask for that and got the rights. So sophisticated games has the rights to publish adventure games in general, comprising role-playing games and board games set in The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. So it's a bit, it's a bit complicated. It's a sub-license. Uh, no one can do a role-playing game or a board game with a board and everything unless they go to sophisticated games. Luckily, gotcha. So, mm -hmm. oh, go, no, go ahead. Luckily, sophisticated games is quite a different beast from other companies handling rights, uh, because sophisticated games and the name can give you a hint uh, is very much into doing quality stuff. So they are not interested in simply in publishing stuff just for the the the, the cash grab. Uh, they want to have something that stays on the market for much longer, that makes people happy, and so on. So it was absolutely a pleasure to work with them since decades, because since the 2004 with the publication of Wordering, and we never had any problems with creative choices and stuff like that. So Robert Hyde from Sophisticated Games is a friend now, after so many years, and and really made it possible to have everything you've seen to have that level of quality because they allowed us to take the time it was needed and so on. And this ties to why it's with the Free League because I really wanted the One Ring to go to Free League when we, we ended up the contract with with, Sophist with uh, Cubicle 7 way back. Yep. And I felt that Free League was absolutely the home of the One Ring because of their design philosophy and so on. So that was going to be my follow-up then, because I was just going to kind of wonder how you and Free League connected, whether they got the license directly from Sophisticated and came to you. But it sounds like you really kind of pitched for Free League to do yeah. the new edition. Yeah, yeah, because interesting, it, it's interesting that no, uh, I mean, a lot of companies came to me and to Sophisticated Games to get the license to do the One Ring again when we 
we didn't have a, a contract anymore with with Cubico Seven, and Free League was not among the names that that the companies that came to us. <laughs> we almost went through with another very very good company. Uh, I would have been very happy to work with them anyway, uh, but then at the time I was really, and I'm still convinced it was the 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 best idea in the end it was to go to to free league and i insisted so much that i mean robert for example didn't know them yet so i had to to warm him up to to the idea and eventually i succeeded and i absolutely don't regret the choice and neither does robert who's very very happy that we went to to thomas and free league i'm happy because uh, i i've i i picked up one ring now <laughs> all right so um so my this is kind of another question that I had for you um, that was asked by another one of our listeners, Caleb, with the, the Rollist podcast is so basically, let's just, you know, call it how it is. I mean, the one ring is an Italian game. All right. <laughs> so what kind of are there any design philosophies that you think Italian games bring to RPGs that we don't get from other Western RPGs? I couldn't say uh, really because um, uh, the vast majority of the games I played were not Italian. Uh, okay, gotcha. All the role playing games. So I think I owe much of my design sensibilities to to Chaosium, for example, because I played so much uh, with with Call of Cthulhu and and with King Arthur Pendragon that uh, and I loved so much and respected so much the the design behind those games that uh, I I cannot at all say I wasn't influenced by them. I was very very influenced. Uh, by them and and I think that everyone who has played King Arthur and Dragon and plays the One Ring will see uh, what I mean uh, when I talk about influences. So, um, but the the Italian scene was always very active because uh, I think we like so many other uh, European countries compared to the U.S. We were less uh, imprinted by D and D. Uh, because D&D was so prominent in the States that I think uh, it suffocated a bit uh, some some level of creativity. I mean, thinking outside the box, because of course D&D yeah. was so good and so well received that everyone was just, you know, tweaking things. Okay, let's change uh, dexterity, call it agility and, and constitution, let's, <laughs> let's call it stamina and, and stuff like that. So we had so many repetitions yeah. of the same scheme. Uh, where, for example, in France, in France, they, they have a huge number of, of local designs from the 80s that were brilliant and they were absolutely crazy also. I mean, I remember a game about uh, intelligent swords. You were playing the sword, not the warrior holding it. You're, the character was the sword, <laughs> like Strobringer in, in Elric. So, or another game where everything that happens is the dream of a dragon. So crazy stuff. And, and in Italy, I think we had a level of that uh, coming from our love for comic books from, from South America like the, the, and, and, and France, like the heavy metal, you know, Metal Urland was amazing yeah. with crazy stuff in there. So I think that we were less structured to less prone to just repeat 
uh, D&D. Uh, and yeah, we have, of course, many, many, way less games than in the States, but already our own game in 1991, Lex Arcana 1993, was already following a design for uh, accessibility that was unprecedented at the time. Today is quite the norm, but at the time, I mean, it was a game that was so less crunchy than most of the games of its period. Gotcha. So that so the other follow-up here is the... So it definitely sounds like less influence from D&D, which is, I mean, that's that's great. But the, the other question is, so Free League, they're known for, they take other games, make English translations or take older games, revive them. Simbarum, Twilight 2000. Is there a European game Italian, French, um, any anything that you can think of that you would like to? I know Lex Arcana. We just got a new a new ver- version of that. But is there another game from over there that you think deserves a translation or an update for this new tabletop RPG audience? Well, um, well, some of them I, I can think of other other occasions where other instances where something was ported over because uh, Chaosium, for example, published their own version of Nephilim. Nephilim was a French game uh, that used the the basic role-playing system. And so when Chaosium felt they could make their own version, but they changed it a lot. They they adapted it. You know, it's it's like when in the US they make a, a different version of a movie that was good in the UK, for example, and they just yeah they, they just they just reshoot it with different actors to make it more fitting to the American market. So Nephilim had that uh, process, and also Inomine Satanis. Inomine Satanis was a crazy game by one of the most brilliant French designers by the name of Croc, um, who's now one of the owners of Asmodee, by the way, and uh, who made this crazy game about angels and demons because it was a game that you could, on one side was in nomine satanis, so it was if you were playing a, a demon, and if you flipped the game over, on the other side, it was magna veritas, if you were playing the angels. So, <laughs> and Steve Jackson Games made in nomine, that was a very, very watered-down version of that game, because it was all about violence and, and everything that so was so out there that in Steve Jackson had to change it. But now that you make me think of that, well, there was a brilliant game in Italy called uh, I Cavalieri del Tempio, that means the Knights Templars, that was not about the actual historical Knights Templar. It was about the mystic side of the Knights Templar and about the idea that you were playing immortal souls, an immortal soul that could be reincarnated in different ages. And so you could play in the modern day and you could play in the Middle Ages because your immortal soul is there and it exists in every in every age so you created a character then you adapted it to the to the time period by choosing a role and it was brilliant but it wasn't very long-lived so but now there's so much stuff coming out that there's no need of thinking of adapting because there are many companies italian companies that are going directly to kickstarter with their own stuff for example mana project mana project has done uh games like um Journey to Ragnarok, that's a 5e uh, game and, and, and more. And there's need games. Need games, they have done uh, 
Fabula Ultima, that it's a it's a role playing game based on JRPGs. So uh, Japan, okay, uh, Japanese role playing games. It's uh, amazingly illustrated by an Italian artist, but that looks like a manga artist totally. And I'm sure they are looking into uh, making an English version of that. Oh, that'd be great. I'm just so excited because um, as somebody, I've, I've only been, I've been playing games now for I th- about seven years now and obviously introduced through D&D and um, American games. But I feel like in the last few years, my interest has shifted, thanks to Free League a lot, to more European games. And it feels like I'm just, I'm discovering so many new games and I'm so excited at seeing them start to penetrate the US market more. So it's super cool. Super excited to see what you all do with the One Ring. Um, I'm excited to start digging into my stuff. Uh, so before we go, then, is there any last thing you need to tell everybody about One Ring Second Edition? Yeah, that I'm. I hope that they will appreciate the effort that we put into making the game, uh, and the effort is. Uh, I mean, was aimed at making the game as best as possible from every point of view. I'm already seeing from the from the uh, reactions of, of people that they are absolutely appreciating the care that we put in, in the look, in the look of the game, the illustration and the, the paper we chose and everything. So that's something that it really makes me really happy. And I really look forward to see what you will be doing with it. I mean, the players. So I'm I'm waiting to see people creating their own landmarks like for example they did for forbidden lands they started creating immediately adventure sites for the game and so on i'm hoping that this new edition of the game will make it even more a game that is owned by the players that they they will capture the spirit that is in there that is made to make you own middle earth and make you make what you want with it yeah, I'm super excited to dig in, and I know everybody who's listening, people are, a lot of people in our Discord are very excited about this game. <laughs> so uh, it's going to be, I'm really, I'm really hoping to be able to dive in soon. So uh, Francesco, thank you so much uh, for joining me here on the podcast today. Appreciate it so much. Thank you, uh, And Oh, no problem. And folks, uh, don't forget, just go check out the One Ring Second Edition. Uh, you all know we're fans of Free League here. Uh, it's it's good stuff. So uh, as always, as we like to close the show, if you're having fun, you're doing it right. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to the RPG Academy podcast. We do this show out of love for the hobby and the desire to be ambassadors, welcoming more people into this community. All of our website content will always be free to use and utilize. But there are expenses related to the show. And if you enjoy what we do here, then please consider supporting us in some way. You can do so as simply as rating or reviewing us on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. If you're going to purchase anything through Amazon or DriveThruRPG, consider using our affiliate links first, and then we'll get a small percentage sent back to us. You can do a single direct donation through PayPal using the paypal.me slash the RPG Academy or consider joining our Patreon campaign at patreon.com slash the RPG Academy. And for a donation as low as $1 a month, you'll get access to lots of extra goodies, including bonus minisodes, invites to monthly one-shot games, one-sheet adventures, and more. Please consider following us on Twitter and Facebook 
or join our Discord, where we like to try to keep the conversation going with our fans as best we can and are always looking to talk and chat more. Or do none of that. Just continue to listen and enjoy our show. Because honestly, that's enough. Thanks. And remember, if you're having fun, you're doing it right. We'll see you next time. The music used for our intro and outro is Fly a Kite by Spectacular Sound Productions, used under the Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike License.